Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is November 30th, 2020, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is, I Heard a Rumor that ER docs aren't great at the hints exam. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Mary McLean. She is an assistant program director at St. John's Riverside Hospital Emergency Medicine Residency in Yonkers, New York. She is the New York ASAP liaison for the research and education committees and is the past all New York City EM resident education fellow. Welcome to the SGM, Mary. Thank you for having me. Well, don't spread a rumor. Just tell me right out what got you so interested in the HINTS exam? Well, it's been on my radar for years. I gave a two-minute HINTS exam presentation for my med school ED rotation, and I thought it was the bee's knees. I cited its great diagnostic accuracy for neuro-ophthalmologists, but nobody really posed the question to me about the applicability for emergency physicians. And spoiler alert, back then there was no evidence about that. Fast forward six years and it's still nagging at me. Stroke is one of the most important can't-miss diagnoses in the ED, and posterior stroke is not well detected by clinical tools like the NIH stroke scale. I want some tool to help me detect posterior stroke at the bedside. Well, you reached out to me with this actual systematic review and meta-analysis, asking me if I'd be interested in doing it. And I thought, yeah, this looks really interesting, but it really didn't click who you were but we actually met before. Yeah, we did. Feminem. What a great conference that was. That was back when we could actually gather in large groups. It, it had to be close to, what, a thousand people in New York City talking about females in emergency medicine and trying to fix things. Yeah, what a great conference. And uh, I miss those times, but I'm confident we'll, we'll get back to that point someday, <laughs> hopefully in the next few months. <laughs> well, one of the highlights for me was being able to distribute a whole bunch of purple capes to recognize all the superheroes there are of women in emergency medicine and actually get to meet them face to face. Yeah, you know, over the last year or so, I have needed to put that cape on several times. It has it has really it's a it's a confidence booster and it just makes me feel wonderful. So that was a wonderful gift. All right, let's get started on today's episode. Can you give us a case? Of course. A 50-year-old female presents to your community emergency department in the middle of the night with new onset constant but mild vertigo and nausea. She has nystagmus, but no other physical exam symptoms. You try meclizine, ondansetron, valium, and fluids, and nothing is helping. Her head CT, with and without contrast, is negative, taken about three hours after symptom onset. You're about to call in your MRI tech from home, but then you remember reading that the HINTS exam is more sensitive than early MRI for diagnosis of posterior stroke. And you wonder... Why can't I just rule out stroke with the HINTS exam? How hard can it be? So you perform the HINTS exam, and the results are reassuring, but the patient's symptoms persist. Up to 25% of patients presenting to the emergency department with acute vestibular syndrome, or AVS, 
have a central cause for their vertigo, commonly a posterior stroke. Now, posterior circulation strokes account for up to a quarter of all ischemic strokes. An MRI diffuse weighted image, or DWI, is only about 77% sensitive, so true positives, for detecting posterior strokes when performed within 24 hours of symptom onset. As an alternative diagnostic method, the HINTS exam was first established in 2009 to better differentiate central from peripheral causes of AVS. But what is the HINTS exam? Well, it's a combination of three structured bedside assessments, the head impulse test of vestibulo-ocular reflex function, nystagmus characterization in various gaze positions, and the test of skew for ocular alignment. And when used by neurologists and neuroophthalmologists with extensive training in these exam components, it's been found to be nearly 100% sensitive and over 90% specific for central causes of AVS. And over the past decade, some emergency physicians have adopted this examination into their own bedside clinical assessment and documentation. We've used it to make decisions for our patients, particularly when MRI is not readily available. We've even used it to help decide whether or not to get a head CT. But we've done this without the extensive training undergone by neurologists and neuroophthalmologists, and without any evidence that the HINTS exam is diagnostically accurate in the hands of emergency physicians. All right, Mary, what's the clinical question? Clinical question is, can emergency physicians accurately rule out a central cause of vertigo using the HINTS examination? And what's the reference? The reference is Ole et al. By the same title, Can Emergency Physicians Accurately Rule Out a Central Cause of Vertigo Using the HINTS Examination? A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, Academic Emergency Medicine 2020. Now, I've got to tell you, Mary, for full disclosure, Uh Robert has been on the SGEM hop before for his paper on aortic dissection. And that was SGEM number 215. Oh, wonderful. I also have a conflict with another author on the paper, and that's Dr. Sarah McIsaac, who is this wonderful anesthesiologist in Sudbury who invited me this past spring to present at the Northern School of Medicine Northern Lights Conference. Oh, and by the way, Dr. O is married to Dr. McIsaac. Ah, now it comes out. There's always more layers to research and science, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Two degrees of separation as opposed to the normal six. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population? The population was adult patients presenting to an emergency department with AVS. And then there were some exclusions like non-peer-reviewed studies were not included in this systematic review and meta-analysis, unpublished data, retrospective studies, vertigo which stopped before or during workup, incomplete HINTS exam, or studies with data overlapping with other studies used. How about the intervention? The HINTS examination as performed by emergency physicians, neurologists, or neuro-ophthalmologists. And what did they compare it to? CT and or MRI. And what was their outcome? 
diagnosis of a central cause like posterior stroke. All right. The author's conclusions were, quote, the Hintz examination, when used in isolation by emergency physicians, has not been shown to be sufficiently accurate to rule out a stroke in those patients presenting with AVS, end of quote. All right. Now we have six quality checklist questions for systematic reviews of diagnostic studies. You ready to go, Mary? Absolutely. First question here. The diagnostic question, is it clinically relevant with an established criterion standard? Unsure. The search for studies was detailed and exhaustive. Yes, it was. The methodological quality of the primary studies that they included were assessed for common forms of diagnostic research bias. Yes. The assessment of studies were reproducible? Yes, they were. Time to talk heterogeneity. Was there low heterogeneity for estimates of sensitivity or specificity? No, there were not. And the final question, the sixth question, the summary diagnostic accuracy is sufficiently precise to improve upon existing clinical decision-making models. I'll go with unsure on this one as well. All right, let's go through some of their key results here. They searched multiple electronic databases with no language or age restrictions and even looked for the gray literature. The authors identified over 2,600 citations with only five articles meeting inclusion criteria for a grand total of 617 patients. What was the key result? Well, it's really important to note that there were no studies that included only emergency physicians performing the HINTS examination. Well, essentially, the authors separated the studies into two cohorts according to the medical specialties of the HINTS examiners. And for each cohort, they reported the sensitivity and specificity of the HINTS exam for diagnosis of posterior stroke. The first cohort included neurologists and neuroophthalmologists, and the sensitivity of the HINTS exam for this cohort was 96.7%, and the specificity was 94.8%. In contrast, the second cohort, only one study. Remember, they included five studies in total, but they only had one study in this second cohort that included emergency physicians and neurologists. And the sensitivity and specificity was much lower. It was 83% sensitive and 44% specific with wide confidence intervals. And from these results, it was deduced that emergency physicians' participation in the latter cohort resulted in the reduced diagnostic accuracy. They did not combine the five studies into one summary result due to the heterogeneity of the included studies, and the heterogeneity was greater than 40%. And we'll put a table in the show notes that gives the sensitivity, the specificity, and the likelihood ratios of all five studies. Well, Mary, it's time to talk nerdy. You ready? Absolutely. I love talking nerdy. I mean, I am just this big nerd. <laughs> so we've got five points. You've got number one. Yes, I do. The first point is available studies. Unfortunately, there were only five studies meeting the inclusion criteria for a total of 617 patients. 
This is just a known limitation of systematic reviews. Authors are simply limited by the available studies. Yeah, it is what it is. That's what you got, and it's what you got to work with. Nerdy point number two is about biases. They use the Quadis 2 assessment tool for probing the literature for the biases of the included studies. Now, four out of the five studies had at least one component considered high risk for bias, and three of the studies had unclear reports on at least one component, which means looking at the overall quality of these studies, it was considered low. Adherence to the STARD reporting guidelines was mediocre to poor overall because only two of the five studies reported on most of the items in the guidelines. And it's easier if I just put a figure in the actual blog that represents the risk of bias. And it'll have a green, which says low risk of bias, yellow, which is unclear of bias, and a red mark, which signifies high risk of bias. The reference standard, or the index test, used in these studies for all patients recruited was CT or MRI. Now, we know that CT imaging has a low sensitivity for posterior stroke, but one of the studies allowed negative head CT alone as adequate imaging to rule it out. With such low sensitivity, this crucial diagnosis can be missed. And remember, even MRI diffusion-weighted imaging has a reported sensitivity of only 77%. Mary, the problem you're describing in diagnostic studies is called the imperfect gold standard bias, or a copper standard bias. And it happens if the quote-unquote gold standard isn't such a great test. And with an MRI having a sensitivity of 77%, I would say that's pretty much a copper standard. That's absolutely right. And another bias that was identified was partial verification bias, or referral or workup bias. This happens when only a certain set of patients who were suspected of having the condition are verified by the reference standard, which in this case was CT or MRI. So the AVS patients with suspected strokes with a positive HINTS exam were more likely to get advanced neuroimaging than those with a negative HINTS exam. This would increase sensitivity but decrease specificity. It's also unknown if the original studies that they included in this systematic review and meta-analysis had consecutive patients, or was it a convenient sample of patients? The latter could introduce spectrum bias. Sensitivity can depend on spectrum of disease, while specificity can depend on spectrum of non-disease. Four out of the five included studies had the ED physician identify the patient for a referral. If patients with indeterminate or ambiguous presentations, rather than all patients who presented with AVS, were excluded, this could falsely raise sensitivity. And the last of the biases that we'll mention, because there were so few studies, it made assessing publication bias very difficult. And this is an area of research that I'm really interested in, understanding the direction of bias in diagnostic studies. And if you share this interest, you can pick up a fantastic article by... 
in academic emergency medicine 2013. And there's also a good book by Dr. Jesse Pines, who was the guest skeptic just recently for his SGEM Hop article on advanced practice providers. And of course, one of his co-authors is my BFF, Chris Carpenter. I love it. So we've talked about bias a lot, and I know that you love talking about bias, but next point is heterogeneity. The authors used the I-square statistic to represent heterogeneity. Our overall I-square values are 53% for sensitivity and 94% for specificity, likely representing moderate and considerable heterogeneity, respectively. Not great. Notably, for the neurologist and neuro-ophthalmologist cohort alone, the I-square was noted to be zero, representing low or negligible heterogeneity. The fourth point we wanted to talk about was precision and reliability. There is poor precision overall, specifically for the cohort of emergency physicians with neurologists. The 95% confidence interval around the point estimate for sensitivity and specificity were really wide. Sensitivity was 83% and specificity was 44%. But again, the confidence interval, the fuzziness around those point estimates was wide. So I'm really excited now, Ken, because I get to get up on my soapbox. I love those moments. Let's talk about the reliability. The HINTS exam cannot yet be relied upon by emergency physicians as a bedside tool to rule out stroke. We simply don't have the evidence to support its adequacy as a diagnostic tool in the hands of emergency physicians. And in fact, we may now have a hint of evidence to the contrary. I get it. We all got so excited in 2009 when we heard the rumor about the HINTS exam and how well it worked for neurologists and neuro-ophthalmologists. The idea of it was mesmerizing. A bedside test that was quick and free and more sensitive than early MRI. So we all looked up those YouTube videos on how to perform the exam. We had to triple check how to interpret it when we got back to our desks. And we dove into this too fast and too deep before receiving structured training on this difficult exam that we all thought was simple, and before learning exactly what kind of patients it was appropriate for. So now we need to take a step back and be more methodical. We need a large, multi-center, randomized control trial on the diagnostic accuracy of the HINTS exam for emergency physicians. Whew, that felt good. Did it feel good? I, I'm glad you got to have a catharsis. <laughs> it really did. I was one of those physicians that thought, wow, this is really cool. I love the idea that a physical maneuver can be more diagnostically accurate than some multi-million dollar magnet of technology. And so I tried to do the HINTS exam early on, but I found it very frustrating. I looked at those YouTube videos. I tried to do it and I did get frustrated and I have not been using it as part of my diagnostic workup for these patients presenting with vertigo. Are you still using the HINTS exam in your practice? I am not anymore. 
I would love to get the training on it that I need in order to use it and incorporate it into my practice. But just like you, I was just looking up the YouTube videos all the time and I never really trusted my interpretation or even my performance of the exam. It's just beyond us if we don't have the training. And it's a high impact diagnosis that you don't want to miss based on a YouTube video. Exactly. All right, let's get to the fifth point, and that's about generalizability and validity of conclusions. The authors did not restrict their search to any particular language, and thus they were able to find studies in four different countries. Four out of the five studies had good and detailed description of vertigo, nystagmus, and other symptoms of included patients. However, two of the five studies were exclusively done on inpatient cohorts, while the other three were ED, ED referred, or ED admitted patients with the diagnosis of cerebellar stroke. Now, we mentioned that the authors grouped their studies into two cohorts of HINTS examiners. Cohort A was neurologists and neuroophthalmologists, and cohort B was emergency physicians and neurologists. The former cohort had much better numbers across the board, but the latter was literally a big cluster for both accuracy and precision. And the assumption is, because the cohort A neurologists performed well, the cohort B neurologists probably did too. So the sensitivity and specificity of the emergency physician hints exam was presumably even worse than 83 and 44% respectively. But can we really make these indirect conclusions from the analyses done on these mixed specialty cohorts? Well, those are the five nerdy points we wanted to discuss. Now it's time to comment on the author's conclusion and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. Well, both the authors and the SGEM acknowledge that there is still insufficient evidence on this topic, but also they note that the HINTS exam need not be completely eliminated from the emergency department assessment. The biggest difference in the two conclusions is that the SGEM is cautioning listeners to gain expert-level skill in performance and interpretation of the HINTS exam before incorporating it into any aspect of their practice. Unstructured, uninformed, incorrect, and overconfident use of the HINTS exam could do harm. All right, Mary, can you give an SGEM bottom line? Our SGEM bottom line is, the available evidence does not support the use of the HINTS examination alone by emergency physicians in patients with isolated vertigo or acute vestibular syndrome to rule out a posterior stroke. And can you resolve the case you presented at the beginning of the podcast? Absolutely. So despite your reassuring HINTS exam, you call in your MRI tech for a stat brain MRI with diffusion-weighted imaging. This MRI, six hours from symptom onset, still shows no evidence of posterior stroke. However, you and your neurologist consultant agree that the patient needs admission and further workup because early MRI is only 77% sensitive for posterior stroke. And how are you going to take this new systematic review and meta-analysis that is published on the HINTS exam and apply it clinically? Well... I'd say that if 
you're well-trained in the HINTS exam, feel free to do it for select patients. However, you must know when and how to use it and how to interpret it and communicate the findings and also how to document it in your patient's medical record. Otherwise, like I said, you could potentially do more harm than good by professing that we are experts in a skill that is proving more difficult than we previously thought. At this time, emergency physicians should only perform or interpret the HINTS exam with extreme caution, particularly when using it to rule out central causes of AVS, because this is a mistake you can't take back. A non-reassuring HINTS exam may may appropriately raise your suspicion for central causes, But also, think about the clinical aspects of this. Never perform the HINTS exam in a patient with clear neurologic deficits concerning for stroke because you already know there's no reason to perform it. And never perform the HINTS exam in a patient with any concern for trauma or cervical dissection. Also, think really hard about whether or not you should perform it on patients at risk for carotid stenosis. The quick and jerking movements of a properly performed head impulse test could theoretically propagate an existing dissection or dislodge an atherosclerotic plaque. I think that last part is really important about knowing the patients you're going to be performing the HINTS exam on and that head impulse test. And I'll just add one more potential risk factor, and that is an older individual, a senior, somebody of advanced age, and then you're going to take this kyphotic, osteoarthritic, osteoporotic neck and go quickly back and forth with the head impulse test. That always made me feel a little anxious. Yeah, that would make me feel uncomfortable too, Ken, and that's a great point. So what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? Well, I'll tell them... I'm still concerned about a possible stroke in the back of the brain causing your dizziness. So we will admit you to the hospital for observation, and the neurologist will come by and do something called a HINTS examination. They have more skill in this area, and they'll use it to decide if you need any other intervention. Last week's winner was another win for Dr. Stephen Steltz of New Zealand. He knew that Dr. Johan Milkowitz is the Polish surgeon who started to wear a mask in 1897. What's the question this week, Mary? Our question for this week is, what percent of female patients 65 and over present with dizziness and vertigo, according to the 2017 NHAMCS database? The recent questions have been a little too easy, so I really wanted to challenge the S-jammers out there. So if you can find that 2017 statistic on the percent of female patients 65 years and over presenting with dizziness and vertigo, oh yes, I will send you a cool skeptical prize. There's some other FOMED out there on this issue, and I'll list those in the show notes. But Mary, thank you for reaching out to me and suggesting coming on the SGM and doing this paper. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. I'm so glad that we could spread the word about this. Well, I hope, and and, and I'm going to give you a little hint here. (laughs) I hope this will be your first time coming on the SGM. 
Oh, I love it. <laughs> I would definitely love to come back. But always remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Thank you.